Hi, Dr. Mariam. How are you? I'm fine, Katerina. How are you doing? I'm good too. Thank you. Um, yeah, we'll cool? start in a few minutes. Um, pinging people in and sharing it on Twitter and waiting on Dr. Kalsa. So we'll start in a few minutes. Great. I'll be pinging some people in as well. Thank you. Hi, Dr. Saif Khalsa. Um, thank you for coming. Uh, <laughs> and we'll wait a few more minutes for uh, giving people time to arrive. I'll also write um, Dr. Olu. So um, I think he wanted to join. So let's let's wait for him too. Sure. Uh, can you hear me okay, Katerina? Yes. Can you hear me well, everyone? Yes. <laughs> Good. Great. Thank you. Yeah, um, mic check for me too as well. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah, we can hear you too. Hi, Christopher. Oh. Thanks for coming. Hi. Thank you for bringing me up. I uh, can't wait to talk about the topic because I have questions. I hope I have answers. Hi, Dr. Olu. Perfect. Uh, thanks for coming. Good to see you. How's everybody doing? Good, good. Thank you. And you? Hi, Dr. Olu. Hello, Dr. Khalsa. And I hope I pronounced that right. And hello, Christopher. Hello. Yeah. Hello. Hi, Olu. Hey, Sarif. How's it going? Pretty good. Good, good. Um, yeah, I think we can slowly start and then we can always, um, maybe let's, let's just wait another minute and then, then we'll start. Uh, let me just share, like ping, finish pinging people in and then we'll start just one more minute, sorry.
Okay, perfect. Um, uh, let me so welcome everyone to the Science Society Club. Um, it's an honor to have um, Dr. Kalse here. Um, he is so kind to um, tell us uh, some of his research, which I think is especially today quite you know important. Everything anxiety related with current events and, and the last years, I think is very important. So we are really eager to learn from you. And let me just introduce um, to you um, Dr. Kalsa. So he is uh, the director of clinical operations at the Laureate Institute for Brain Research in uh, Tulsa. And uh, he's associate professor of community medicine um, Oxley College of Health Sciences, University of um, Kalsa. And um, he uh, did his, um, I'm sorry, this is, okay. He um, did his, um, MD, he got his MD from the University of Iowa, Carver College of Medicine, and his PhD in neuroscience, of, uh, also from the University of Iowa. And before that, he did his bachelor in science and psychology with honors at Stony Brook University. I did the postdoc there. So, um, and um, he received uh, really um, many honors and awards, um, NARSAT Young Investigator Award and um, Stuart Wolf Scholar Award, to just mention a few. So. Um, yeah, it is an honor to have you here. And thanks for taking the time to share your knowledge with us. And um, yeah, the stage is yours. Okay, well, thank you, uh, Katerina, for this um, invitation to participate uh, in a novel uh, science communication discussion uh, format. So I'm looking forward to um, interacting with people and, and um, hearing and hopefully uh, answering questions, um, I'll do my best. Uh, I don't have uh, specific sort of formal remarks uh, prepared given this um, very conversational format. So, um, but what I'd like to, to start with um, is I'd like you to imagine for a moment that you're visiting a new city and you're walking back through the city uh, to your hotel room. And it's, it's just about twilight. So the, the light is changing and you're navigating your way back to your uh, hotel in this new environment. And uh, the street lights are just coming on. And as you're walking, uh, you sort of look up to notice that maybe that the street lights have just turned on. And you notice that, um, that a few uh, steps ahead of you, maybe a dozen or so steps ahead of you, there's a there's a street uh, off to the right, uh, an alleyway, uh, if you will. And there's no, there's no lights on in there. Uh, and it's getting dark enough now that um, as you're walking uh, and approaching this alleyway, uh, you have a little bit of trouble discerning uh, exactly what's um, down there. And um, this kind of gets you thinking, right? Um, could there be uh, some, something negative down there? For example, maybe you see um, the silhouette of a, of a dumpster or a car or a motorcycle, and, and maybe you wonder if there's somebody hiding behind it. 
that might wish you harm, might maybe try to mug you. Um, you might uh, think that maybe there's something interesting down there. Maybe there's a park or an, uh, an unknown landmark or maybe a shop that carries some unique uh, items that you could bring back home to a relative. Um, so uh, as you kind of are approaching this alleyway and having these thoughts, I want you to think about um, what kind of uh, physical sensations you might also uh, be experiencing. I think we all have had these kinds of experiences before uh, encountering this, this exact type of scenario. Um, and I don't wanna speak for everybody, but uh, certainly I think it's reasonable um, to suggest that your heart might um, quicken uh, and you might potentially kind of tense your muscles a little bit uh, in anticipation of, of the event, either positive or negative. Um, you, uh, you might notice that your, uh, your mouth uh, gets a little bit dry. Um, you might notice that your breathing gets a little bit faster or, or tighter in your chest. Uh, and, um, you know, this leaves you with a decision. What do you do? Do you keep walking and do you walk past the alleyway? Um, do you cross the street to go uh, on, on the other side and avoid it completely? Uh, or do you go down the alleyway? Um, and each of these decisions uh, comes with a, an action associated with it that has very specific outcomes and consequences. And of course, uh, in this hypothetical scenario, we don't really know what those consequences are, right? Um, and uh, it's very possible that in the, maybe there's a park on the other side of that uh, dark alleyway, um, but by avoiding the street, uh, you never get to see the park and, and instead you end up bumping into somebody who, who mugs you, right? Uh, this is sort of the inherent ambiguity uh, that we encounter all the time in our environments. So um, with that kind of uh, explanation or that sort of uh, example as a background, I wanna introduce you to generalized anxiety disorder, uh, which is the most common clinical manifestation of anxiety. Um, it's uh, as defined, uh, it is a um, excessive uncontrollable anxiety and worry that persists for at least six months. Um, and um, it's perceived, uh, again, it's uncontrollable, right? It's not something that people feel that they can manage. Um, patients with GAD frequently have um, uh, not very good responses to um, standard uh, medications or psychotherapy. Um, they're rather difficult to treat. Um, they affect women twice as much as they affect men. Um, they're associated with a lot of other comorbidities, so depression, um, substance use disorders, uh, or other anxiety disorders. In fact, it's, it's rather common that um, the co sort of comorbidity is more the rule rather than the exception. Um, in addition, to be uh, diagnosed with a disorder, um, these individuals have some degree of bodily symptoms. The, these include things like feeling restless, um, having a lot of muscle tension, um, feeling uh, keyed up or on edge, uh, or uh, headaches, uh, or insomnia. Uh, and so um, these are the common kinds of um, uh, symptoms that a psychiatrist will um, assess when they're seeing a patient um, with anxiety if they're trying to rule out generalized anxiety disorder or GAD. Now, one thing that's sort of un, uh, a little less known is that um, patients with GAD um, 
often have um, some degree of heightened um, uh, perception of other body symptoms. So they, they frequently report being disturbed by um, heightened body sensations related to their heartbeat. Um, and in fact, um, they, they ha have been uh, found to present to the emergency department um, uh, for evaluation of palpitations, um, sort of a discomfort related to pounding in their chest um, at rates that are um, even with those with panic disorder. So um, there's about a third of the patients who present to emergency rooms complaining of uh, palpitations or sort of pounding in the, of their heart in their chest or chest pain. About a third of them will actually have um, a diagnosis related to a psychiatric disorder rather than a diagnosis related to a cardiovascular disorder like a myocardial infarction or heart attack or a heart arrhythmia. So, um, so I think from that perspective, uh, the um, perception of physiological arousal that GAD patients have um, is often somewhat mismatched um, to their, their physiological state. Um, this, this has not been well established in, um, in prior studies. Um, there's sort of variable findings um, that differ depending on whether people were studied in the laboratory or in ambulatory settings. Um, what's clear is that there are abnormalities reported of symptoms um, related to um, uh, these um, so-called interoceptive sensations or sensations um, that relate to uh, the perception of signals originating from within the body. Um, but uh, there really hadn't been a lot of uh, studies that looked at this from a physiological um, and uh, neuroscience perspective. So um, that's kind of what we set about to do in this, uh, in this uh, particular study. Uh, we wanted to look at the neural basis of um, anxious arousal in GAD. Um, and uh, we wanted to use a very specific experimental protocol uh, which is one that I've been working with now for almost 15 years um, that has a very, um, some very distinct advantages if you're trying to understand the neurobiological basis um, of, a, of, of this, um, of interoception or of how we perceive the uh, internal state of our body. So um, what we used uh, is, is a medication uh, called isoproteranol. Um, and uh, isoproteranol is essentially an adrenaline analog. So um, what I want to first do is um, give you a little bit of a, of a, a background in uh, something called the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis or HPA axis. It's the most common um, neurobiological pathway that is um, studied uh, by people who do stress research. So the hypothalamus is in the brain, um, as is the pituitary gland. Um, and when people are stressed, their brains will send signals from the hypothalamus to the pituitary gland, um, which then uh, send signals to your adrenal glands, which actually sit down in the body on top of your kidneys to release stress hormones. And the, the stress hormone that most people are familiar with and that most people study is cortisol. Uh, and part of the reason is that that has a really long range or long term um, impact on things like um, cellular gene expression, um, it can lead to the, the development and expression of, of new proteins. Um, it, and it, it has sort of long-acting um, properties to it for the most part. Um, whereas the uh, adrenal, so the adrenal hormones, which are actually, so cortisol is released from the uh, adrenal cortex. That's why they call it cortisol. So that's the outside of the adrenal gland. 
But in the, in the middle, uh, an area known as the adrenal medulla, that's what releases something called uh, 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 epinephrine and norepinephrine, and a common term for them is adrenaline. So in that example that I started with, where you're approaching a dark alleyway um, and your heart starts to quicken, there are several well-known, well-established physiological mechanisms by which um, your heart rate might increase. So one of those uh, might be um, that um, uh, your brain sends a signal uh, down through your vagus nerve that uh, releases an inhibitory neurotransmitter directly onto the heart, um, which uh, can uh, slow down your heart rate or um, quicken it, depending. Um, you, there's another pathway, and that's sort of thought of as a parasympathetic pathway. There's another pathway where um, you can release um, adrenaline directly onto the heart muscle from nerve terminals uh, through um, a, a ganglion uh, or a collection of nerve cells called the stellate ganglion. So that's what you might think of as these very rapid millisecond level um, uh, le uh, levels of control over um, your cardiovascular uh, response. Um, on the other hand, as you're approaching that alleyway, your brain could also um, get your adrenal glands to squirt out um, and release more uh, adrenaline into your bloodstream. And that would take about 20 seconds or so um, to circulate and reach the heart, um, at which point it could have a direct action uh, on increasing your heart rate and, and increasing the contractility of your heart, sort of the, the amount that the heart kicks and squeezes um, uh, by directly acting on what are called uh, adrenergic receptors and a particular subclass called beta adrenergic receptors. So um, what we used in this study to simulate the effects of adrenaline um, uh, on, the, on the heart and on the body was uh, this drug called isoproteranol. And the reason that we picked it is because it has a very um, selective action on these beta adrenergic receptors that are in the heart. They're also in the lungs. Um, and uh, they um, have the, uh, the uh, added advantage over epinephrine or, or adrenaline that um, this, the, the, the chemical structure of this drug is such that it does not cross the blood-brain barrier very well. So it's a good um, peripheral uh, way to, or it's a good way to peripherally perturb the, the cardiovascular system. So we, we think of this as, as you know, again, um, uh, acting at the level of the heart. Um, and then what we're interested in is measuring um, at the level of perception and at the level of the brain, um, what was happening in, in the patients. Um, <clears throat> the brief uh, history on uh, isoproteranol is that it was the original um, asthma medication. It was actually developed because it, um, the beta-2, um, uh, the, the, basically it would bronchodilate um, uh, uh, the lungs um, and early asthma patients felt that they could breathe easier um, during an asthma attack when they got the medication, but they also noticed their heart pounding so um, basically what was then developed was a beta-2 selective um, uh, drug called albuterol uh, that acts only on bronchodilating or predominantly on bronchodilating the lungs. So if you've ever used an albuterol inhaler, you're not too far away from uh, isoproteranol. But again, in this study, we used isoproteranol um, because uh, we wanted to have that action on the heart. We wanted to elicit um, uh, these known, very well-controlled changes in, in cardiovascular state. Um, again, the advantage is it acts in the periphery. So um, we've done neuroimaging studies, uh, several neuroimaging studies in healthy individuals and found um, that it uh, indeed 
in, not only um, in behavioral studies, we've done probably uh, eight of those. Um, it elicits very reliable um, increases in um, the feeling of your heart um, beating faster and harder um, and also changes in your breathing. Um, it does elicit some degree of anxiety, but it doesn't um, necessarily induce panic attacks. Um, uh, we, uh, if you use a high enough dose, you can get people to experience some higher levels of panic anxiety, but um, we've uh, worked to calibrate the, this, um, the dosing so that we give people low levels of, of the medicine that are tolerable, um, that increase the perception of uh, heartbeat sensations, um, and, and at some levels um, increase uh, anxiety. Um, and that's, uh, again, part of our interest in understanding the interoceptive basis um, of anxiety in anxiety disorders. So, um, so what we did is um, we then uh, wanted to understand what's happening in the brains uh, of the patients with GAD. So when they're when we would uh, make their hearts beat faster and um, stronger, would they would they feel the sensations to a greater extent, like we would predict? Would they be more anxious, like we would predict? Um, and would their brains show a different response from uh, individuals who are non-anxious? Um, and so. Uh, our prediction was that a very specific region of the brain called the insular cortex um, would be hyper-responsive um, in the uh, GAD patients. Um, and that's based on some existing literature that has shown increased um, insular reactivity um, under uh, other kinds of um, uh, anxiety-provoking uh, paradigms. Um, and uh, also the fact that in our studies of healthy individuals, which we've done two um, fMRI studies in healthy individuals, we have shown that this uh, stimulation with isoproteranol selectively um, engages uh, uh, the insular cortex um, and particular regions of the insular cortex that have been suggested to be sort of um, a primary uh, interoceptive cortex, if you will. So we have um, a somatosensory cortex, right, that, uh, that um, has a sensory homunculus, or in other words, different uh, patches of cortex that are dedicated to processing skin sensations from different regions like the hand or the foot, uh, um, et cetera, or the chest. Um, but uh, uh, there really isn't a, a sensory homunculus, if you will, for interoceptive sensations. So for heartbeat sensations, breathing sensations, gut sensations, um, that's not really well known. Um, what has been shown time and time again, including in our studies, is that the insular cortex is one of the most commonly involved areas. Um, although there are actually a, a whole variety of other uh, brain regions um, that, depending on the type of stimulation, will show responses. So, and we'll get into that in a little bit when I talk about the results. So we were predicting increased insular activation, um, and we used uh, a, an approach where we um, gave um, uh, two different uh, doses of the drug, um, sort of a low dose, one that we uh, in would, would normally uh, elicit maybe a mild sensation in, in most, but not all um, healthy participants, and then a higher dose um, uh, that would uh, elicit a, a clear sensation of the heartbeat in, in all of the healthy individuals. Um, and then what we did is we recruited our participants and we brought them in for um, uh, uh, magnetic resonance imaging scanning, you know, fMRI scanning, um, to look at their brain response during that process. So, um, this particular study uh, was a study of uh, females only. As I mentioned, GAD is um, twice as common in males and females. Um, uh, and uh, we, this was part of a larger study where we were um, looking at 
um, uh, interoceptive responses to uh, in, in um, anorexia nervosa, which is a condition that affects um, women um, uh, 10 times as much as it affects men. So because uh, we were focusing on only on females um, for that population, uh, we also uh, were matching the group. So this is a female only study. Um, uh, therefore, one of the limitations is that you can't necessarily extrapolate uh, so easily to males with GAD. Um, so uh, what we did is we, um, we brought um, people in. Uh, we actually uh, assessed and consented a total of 125 people, um, had them go through a very uh, um, rigorous and careful uh, medical screening protocol, including um, doing things like uh, getting a 12-lead EKG, getting a family cardiac history, um, evaluating their health history, evaluating their vital signs, um, uh, and making sure that, um, you know, we were very confident that the physical risks uh, were minimized. Um, we ended up uh, allocating 73 people, um, and uh, out of that, um, uh, in order to report the results of this study, we sort of sub-selected. We had 72 that completed. We did actually have one person who withdrew during the infusions related to a higher level of anxiety, and that was a patient. Um, but uh, out of the 73, 72 completed. And for this analysis, uh, what we did in order to get groups that were evenly matched with respect to age and body mass index, two um, variables that have been associated um, with differences in interoception and sort of differences in the perception of heartbeat sensations, um, we ended up uh, with 29 um, females with GAD and 29 uh, matched healthy comparison females. Um, so, uh, so what did we find? Um, the first thing uh, that we looked at is we looked at um, the, the basic um, uh, compositional characteristics. So, so we looked at, did the groups differ in age or body mass index? They didn't. Um, did they differ with respect to anxiety symptoms uh, and depression symptoms? Um, and in fact, uh, they did. Uh, um, and that's in uh, the, the first table of, of the paper. Um, and um, uh, they also, uh, the, and this is in a supplementary table, but basically um, our requirement was that they all had to have um, generalized anxiety disorder, but they could have certain comorbid conditions. And, and so the most common comorbid condition uh, was depression, uh, which matches what you see in the clinic. Um, and then they had a number of other um, anxiety disorders at, uh, at lower uh, levels of frequency. One thing that the group, uh, the patient group did not have was panic disorder. Um, and that was uh, very much on purpose on our part because um, there is a literature that has looked at um, isoproteranol induced panic um, and panic disorder patients have clearly heightened sensitivity. And what we wanted to do is because we were focusing on GAD, um, uh, we really wanted to exclude um, that as a, a potential reason for some of the differences that we might see. So none of the patients uh, had panic disorder um, in this scenario. Um, whether or not that would, uh, if we had added panic disorder patients, whether that would have led to more people withdrawing from the study is unclear. Um, but uh, again, that's an important um, feature that we'll come back to for the interpretation of the results. So um, the first thing that we looked at uh, after we uh, uh, looked at the demographic characteristics was um, the physiological results. So um, uh, when we gave people uh, these infusions of isoproteranol um, or saline, um, you know, what did, what did their heart rate response look like? And I should add that 
the kind of infusion we're giving is something called a bolus infusion. So um, isoproteranol has a very, very rapid half-life. Uh, so if you give a, a bolus dose, that's sort of like giving a, like a three milliliter dose, a very uh, a small amount um, that has a, a, a response uh, after about 20 seconds of injecting the drug um, through an intravenous line. Um, within about three or four minutes, um, the person's heart rate is back down to baseline completely. Um, and we've done this um, in many of our studies. In fact, all of our studies were bolus doses, um, which allows for repeated dosing um, so that you can look at the effects of dose stimulation. So um, one of the advantages is that you can look at um, the slope of somebody's response to different doses, and then you can calculate um, this measure called the CD25 or chronotropic dose 25, which is essentially the dose of the, of the drug that would be necessary to increase somebody's heart rate by 25 beats a minute. Um, just to give you a sense of what the normal heart rate range is, is it's between 60 beats a minute and 100 beats a minute. So if you ran on a treadmill for a few minutes, you might notice that your heart rate is going up to like maybe 120 or 130 beats a minute, maybe even higher if you're out of shape. Um, so, uh, so what we do is we use the CD25 to estimate sort of the dose in micrograms that, um, that uh, would elicit uh, a particular heart rate response. And that's been associated, um, it's, been, it's an indirect sort of measure of um, the uh, uh, beta adrenergic receptor density on the heart muscle itself, okay? So um, that's a peripheral um, uh, sensitivity measure, right? It has nothing to do um, ostensibly with um, the brain response um, and uh, again, because this drug acts in the periphery, um, that's been, uh, it's been commonly, uh, that measure has been commonly interpreted in that way. So what we found in the patients is that um, the GAD patients actually had lower CD25 values um, than uh, the, the healthy comparison patients, meaning that for a given, um, it would basically take less of the drug to get their hearts to rate, to race faster, right? Um, and so um, we took that as an indication of a uh, peripheral hypersensitivity um, to stimulation. Um, so uh, the next thing that we wanted to look at uh, was um, what were their heart rate responses um, at individual dose levels. Uh, and so what we did is um, we looked at the, we measured heart rate continuously during the scanner. Um, we plotted it out and then we analyzed it. Um, uh, and uh, when, uh, across sort of different epochs of the, of the um, dose response. And basically when you give isoproteranol, after about 20 seconds, if you've given it a, a good enough dose, you'll see a, a robust heart rate response that peaks um, uh, about a minute later and then um, comes back down to baseline within about a minute or a minute and a half. And so we talk about, um, we've divided that window into sort of peak responses, uh, early uh, recovery responses and then late recovery responses. And what we found is that um, the GAD patients showed increased heart rate responses, but it was a selectively increased response that occurred um, predominantly um, at the, the low dose of, of the drug, the 0 0.5 microgram dose. Um, and that corresponded on average um, to a heart rate increase um, in the healthy subjects of about seven beats a minute. Um, whereas in the GAD subjects, the heart rate increase was about uh, 13 beats a minute um, above their baseline. So um, not necessarily a huge difference, five beats a minute on average, but uh, a statistically significant one. And, and I can tell you in relation to um, the other, the sort of the existing 
literature um, that that's sort of that's non-invasive that doesn't use um, pharmacological stressors. Um, uh, usually, what they see is about a, a two to three beat per minute difference um, on measures of of heart rate. Um, uh, change during um, anxiogenic periods. So this was actually larger than what you would typically see um, and phys certainly physiologically relevant. Um, in addition to that, we looked at uh, perception. So what did people feel? Um, when they're getting these uh, infusions, um, uh, we deliver this in what's called a double-blind um, fashion. So um, the participant does not know uh, the identity of the, of the infusion that they're receiving. Um, and uh, the nurse who's administering the, the medicine, who's doing the safety monitoring, also does not know um, uh, exactly what she's giving. So the idea is to try to um, reduce um, uh, expectations or giving any cues about what might be coming so that we can just get a, a, as clean a, of a res uh, assessment as possible on what the person's feeling based on, uh, on sort of uh, flat expectations. So consistent with the um, heart rate response, what we found was that um, the patients also uh, showed a selective increase in their ratings of um, heartbeat and uh, breathing sensations, uh, again, only at this low dose, this one that was in between the saline and the point uh, and the two microgram dose. Uh, so this was at the 0 0.5 microgram dose. And the way that we assessed that was twofold. First, um, what we had our participants doing is um, they would be they would rate a dial they would sort of rate their um, ongoing experience of their heartbeat and breathing sensations continuously using a dial. So when the infusion scan would start, we'd, we'd say, okay, here's a dial. And they'd see what the equivalent of a speedometer that went from zero to 10. And they would be rating in, in real time every second um, the intensity of, the, of those sensations that they perceived. And, and the dial would range from zero, which would be their normal or baseline level, kind of none um, or normal all the way up to a 10, which would be the most intensely that they've ever experienced um, their heartbeat sensations. Um, and so what, um, what, we, what we found uh, is that um, the, the, uh, during the peak period is when you would typically see the response um, increase and the, the patients, um, uh, the healthy comparisons went up to um, a max on average of about a 1.5 out of a 10 at the 0 0.5 microgram dose. So they were feeling their heartbeat and breathing sensations at a 1.5 out of 10, whereas the patients were feeling it at around a three out of 10. So almost twice as high, okay? And uh, then we also had them retrospectively after each infusion was over, individually rate their heartbeat sensations and their breathing sensations. Um, and we found a, a similar pattern um, uh, in, with those ratings. Um, the, the, the breathing sensations tend to be rated um, less intensely than the heartbeat sensation ratings. It's just, that's just based on how the drug works. Um, but, but so we had these, this sort of concurrent and retrospective measure. Um, so um, what this kind of uh, led, uh, uh, led us to think was that there was maybe some uh, interaction between um, what's happening in the, in the body, sort of in the, with their, um, uh, in the cardiovascular and the autonomic nervous system, but also the fact that they're rating these um, sensations higher, um, uh, you know, and that's, that's sort of, um, uh, is certainly influenced by central factors that um, the possibility that there was sort of an interaction um, uh, between, uh, between those two um, uh, areas, uh, the central nervous system and the autonomic nervous system. So, 
with uh, with our um, imaging uh, approach, we were then able to then to look at whether there were differences um, in the brain uh, between the patients and the healthy comparisons. And so, um, again, our prediction was that we were going to see um, increased responses in the um, insular cortex um, in the patients relative to the comparisons. Um, and what we found is that um, we did, in fact, see increased insula activa uh, activation um, with each dose. Uh, so there's, so an increase um, at the 0 0.5 microgram dose, and then an, an, again, an increase at the two microgram dose. Um, but we didn't actually see any group differences um, uh, between uh, the patients and the comparisons. Um, and that was surprising to us. We, would, we, were, we were not expecting that. Um, uh, now, if you remember, I, I mentioned that there are a variety of areas of the brain that are involved in um, interoceptive um, processing. And so um, uh, it, I, I, don't, I don't have time to sort of do a detailed review of all of them, but uh, certainly um, the insular cortex we know is not the only player here. Um, we know that there are um, areas that are considered to be involved in uh, prototypical somatosensation, um, like the somatosensory cortex, primary and secondary, that are often um, cast as being only sort of related to skin uh, sensation from when the stimulation comes from the outside. But um, in, in, in other studies, we've shown that um, somatosensory cortex and somatosensory afferents play a role in the heartbeat sensation. But there are other areas of the brain um, in the frontal cortex in particular that also seem to be involved um, in, uh, in uh, interoception. And, and these are uh, in the medial prefrontal cortex for the most part. Um, and so when we looked at our patients, uh, the patient groups uh, versus the healthy comparison group, um, we actually found that it was uh, in the ventromedial prefrontal cortex where we found uh, group differences in activation. Um, and it was a particular kind of difference. It wasn't an increase in activation um, uh, in, in the um, uh, GAD group. It was actually a blunting uh, uh, response such that um, uh, when we gave the isoproteranol, um, both groups um, w actually showed in, in op so in opposite to the insular cortex, which showed an increased response, their VMPFCs actually showed a decreased response. So it deactivated um, uh, in a dose-dependent manner um, when we gave the isoproteranol. And what we found is that it, the GAD patients actually, um, their VMPFC deactivated the most, but it wasn't indiscriminate. It was, it was again, um, a, a selective occurrence that happened at that 0 0.5 microgram dose, and in particular during that peak and then the, the early recovery periods. So um, uh, we also saw that um, the VMPFC um, uh, uh, active, uh, uh, signal change was uh, highly correlated with um, uh, the change in heart rate, the change in um, heartbeat sensation, uh, the change in breathing sensation, um, and to a lesser extent that in our case didn't survive um, correction for multiple comparisons, to a lesser extent, it also correlated with anxiety. Um, uh, uh, so again, there's this sort of um, multi-level association between what's happening in the heart, what's happening with sensation, and what's happening um, within, uh, within the brain. Um, and uh, on top of it, um, uh, as we predicted, uh, the patients um, experience significantly more anxiety. So we use the same um, anxiety rating scale um, uh, from zero to 10. So 10 being the most ever, zero being none or their normal level of anxiety at baseline. Um, 
And, um, and there, uh, the uh, patients actually had reported higher anxiety than the healthy comparisons at both the 0.5 and the um, two microgram dose. So um, the healthy comparisons anxiety rating was about a one out of 10 um, for, uh, for the medium dose and then a two out of 10 for the high dose, whereas the patients were at a, a two and then a, a four. So um, almost a doubling uh, in each case. So, um, so what does all this mean? Um, I'll, I'll try to do a brief summary uh, and then uh, open it up for discussion so that um, uh, perhaps more of the interpretation might come out um, in, in relation to your interests. Um, so uh, we think that this study provides evidence um, of, of kind of uh, two things. One is a, that there's a, a, an impairment of so-called top-down regulation um, in other words, the, the, the VMPFC, uh, uh, the blunting of the VMPFC response shows sort of an impaired ability to constrain or regulate cardiovascular arousal um, uh, in GAD. And, and this is a brain area I, I um, didn't mention, but this is a brain area that shows um, a lot of um, activa activation in a variety of different contexts, um, not all of them having to do with interoception, but a lot of them having to do with fear learning safety learning, um, um, self-evaluation, um, uh, emotion processing, personality traits. Um, it's, it's, it's called, uh, it's really an area of the, of the cortex that's uh, called a polymodal association cortex, meaning it has many different functions. Um, and, uh, and so pinning any one down on one spot in the brain is, is kind of ludicrous. Um, uh, at the same time, um, when people have studied the function of this area from different perspectives, they've seen consistent responses in a variety of different conditions. And one of them is this notion of the, of the VMPFC playing a visceromotor regulatory role. And um, in fact, the VMPFC is, is very tightly anatomically connected with the insular cortex. And, and so um, one possibility um, that we thought is that, well, since we're activating the insular cortex pretty um, decently in both groups, even though we're not showing differences there, maybe there's some kind of dysregulation that's existing between the connection of activity, um, the functional activity um, um, in the VM, between the VMPFC and the insula. Um, we've seen evidence of that um, in the same sample in a different study um, that is uh, at the level of a preprint right now. We, it's not, uh, has not completed the peer review process. Um, but that sort of uh, was some of our thinking. Um, the other thing that's relevant about the VMPFC is that, um, that there are, um, there's a movement to consider uh, the role of, uh, of um, brain circuitry in anxiety that goes beyond uh, the amygdala, which if, if you've ever heard about you know, the, the neurobiology of anxiety, probably the first thing you might think is amygdala equals anxiety. It's kind of like when people say insula equals interoception. And of course, neither of these is true. Um, the amygdala is actually involved in interoception as well. Um, and the insula is involved in a lot of other things, including language of all, of all uh, functions. So, um, but, uh, but getting back to anxiety, some of um, the current thinking is that um, there are these um, higher order uh, circuits uh, that are cortical um, that have connections to the amygdala and have connections to the insula um, that uh, play a role in, um, in more evaluative and cognitive um, uh, uh, aspects, subjective uh, aspects of 
um, of fear. Uh, and the VMPFC is a prime player in that. Um, so, um, so that was kind of um, some of the, um, some of the uh, way that we thought about this. Um, one, one point that I'll make, and we may get back to this, is that um, uh, I've talked about this stimulation as occurring um, in a sort of bottom-up manner where the drug um, works on the heart in the periphery and, and then elicits this subjective response and a brain response. Um, but I also talked about the VMPFC as a visceromotor regulatory organ that can regulate uh, insula activity, regulate amygdala activity. And, and then, of course, um, there's a whole downstream circuit um, that is well established in fear, including the HPA axis, but also brainstem stu structures like the periaqueductal gray that have a very um, orchestrated pattern response when fear is triggered and it's this is a, a um, evolutionarily conserved response and so the idea um, essentially of what i'm bringing up is is that of a, of a loop um, uh, and it kind of a brain body feedback loop is a very general way of describing this and and we've put input into the system at the level of the heart um, and we've seen these um, very um, uh, uh, consistent differences across uh, all of these levels of measurement. Um, on the other hand, uh, pinpointing exactly uh, which is the, the key controller or what's the critical node within this feedback loop um, is something that we're unable to do with this study, um, uh, you know, uh, because uh, we don't have um, uh, that uh, ability to establish causality at individual uh, points along the way. Um, this, uh, this is a unique study. Um, this is actually the first time that um, uh, uh, somebody's directly um, modulated um, interoceptive signals um, uh, related to fear circuitry in clinically anxious individuals. So um, it represents a significant advance. It's, it's a tricky study to do. Um, as you could imagine, um, it, you need a multidisciplinary collaborative team um, across sort of branches of medicine and, and uh, across the fields of, of neuroscience. Um, uh, one thing that, um, that I think uh, it raises the possibility of is um, future clinical applications. So while we can't say definitively that the VMPFC is the key node, um, it could, could also be sort of, there could be peripheral uh, differences in sensitivity that are driving fear responses. Um, so in other words, Going back to the, the original um, uh, example we metaphor I started with where or scenario where you're walking up, up to the dark alleyway, I can't say for sure that, um, that the person whose um, heart races a little bit more and who feels more anxious, um, that that's happening because they have more beta adrenergic receptors in their heart, or that that's because they have um, a, 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 a reduced ability of their VMPFC to constrain those arousal signals or a combination of the two. On the other hand, um, I do think that it suggests that um, future uh, clinical applications could include studies um, that would aim to focus on different aspects of that loop um, uh, to then try to get information about the causal drivers. So um, one way um, to do this within the central nervous system would be to target uh, ventromedial prefrontal uh, cortex responses using uh, neuromodulation techniques. And the two that we highlighted in the paper were um, real-time uh, fMRI neurofeedback, where a person 
gets a visual image on, on a screen of their, of their VMPFC activity while they're in the scanner and they learn various techniques to try to control the signal. So it's not biofeedback, it's neurofeedback, or you could think of it as kind of an extreme application of biofeedback, um, uh, with the bio being their, their brain signal on this point. Um, another uh, option uh, would be to just uh, sort of more directly take charge and use um, a, a device to um, uh, intervene directly on neurons in the VMPFC. And um, of course, you can't do this um, invasively um, uh, in, a, in, in the vast majority of people, but there are non-invasive neuromodulation tools um, that exist, um, as well as ones on the horizon. Um, and the one that we focused on, uh, no pun intended, was uh, transcranial-focused uh, ultrasound. Um, or TFUS. And this is different from transcranial magnetic stimulation, which has a very broad focal beam um, and cannot penetrate very deep into the brain. Uh, the VMPFC is pretty deep in the brain and it's, it's a midline structure. So there's a lot of tissue that the TMS signal would have to penetrate. And it's not been shown to be very good at that. Um, transcranial focused ultrasound, on the other hand, um, is actually great at focally targeting deep structures in the brain. And it uses um, ultrasound waves um, to do that. Uh, that's an early, early technology that's getting some um, increased attention um, in the field of, of psychiatry and neuromodulation. Um, I think those are some of the uh, potential next steps um, with this work. Um, so uh, with that, um, I'll just end on the limitations of the study. Um, you know, this uh, study, there's a, sort of an increasing movement in the neuroimaging community to argue that um, you need to have really large samples um, and 29 subjects per group um, by modern standards is, is no longer a large study. If, if this was done uh, 10 years ago or 15 years ago, it would have been considered a pretty reasonable, reasonably large sample size. Um, on the other hand, um, when you have the advantage of focally modulating um, a system the way that we are with this medicine, um, this is actually a particular type of study called an experimental medicine study. Um, when you can causally manipulate um, signals in a known way, I think you have a real advantage. And, and oftentimes you don't need to have as large of a, of a sample as you do for other kinds of studies. Um, as I mentioned before, this is a female-only sample, so we can't really extrapolate well to males. Um, and um, we did allow people uh, to use uh, into the study who were taking, um, uh, who were stably medicated for their GAD. Um, we did, uh, there were only six of the subjects out of 29 that were medicated. We did additional analyses without those subjects um, to see whether that had an, an, an effect. And we really um, saw uh, no real uh, major differences um, in our results. Uh, so I think the advantage, uh, on the other hand, um, when you have a causal um, manipulation in this experimental therapeutic framework, um, I do think it's important to be able to study um, patients that are clinically representative. Um, I mentioned that comorbidity is the rule rather than the exception. Certainly medication is is very common for GAD patients. And so um, I like to think that the, the sample that we studied is um, pretty clinically representative of females with GAD. So um, I'll leave it at that and take your questions. Yeah, thank you so much for this um, great in introduction um uh, for the overview of your work it was uh it was really um very very like broad and uh, i i think it was great for our audience and um so yeah let's uh start with questions please 
flash your mics, um, raise your hand, raise your hands. I'm sorry, um, and uh, go ahead. Yes, Christopher, um, go ahead with your question. Okay, my gosh, I have so many questions for you, Doctor, <laughs> but I'll try to keep it brief. Um, you were, uh, I know, I saw your study. Um, there was 58 women. So, did you say that you couldn't discern if? Um, that would be beneficial for if it was just primarily for women that had GID or men as well? Well, we didn't study um, males with GID. And so um, in terms of making our conclusions, um, we, we kind of have to constrain them to the sample that we tested. Um, if, if, I mean, if you were to ask me what would I predict with uh, if we did a study that was only males with GAD, I wouldn't have predictions that were different. Um, I would actually think the same thing. Um, one of the challenges in the literature on GAD, uh, particularly in the neuroimaging literature, um, when you look at the studies that are out there, they tend they, they, they tend to be um, in female enriched. In other words, let's say there's a study that has um, 30 uh, uh, or actually, the more commonly, they're in the low 20s. So 23 uh, GAD participants. Um, it may be that only like three or four of those participants are males. And, and I mentioned that the, the ratio um, uh, of the disorder is, uh, is two to one. So um, in that scenario, if you really um, want to be able to um, have a, an equal understanding of sex effects, you probably would want to um, have even um, uh, evenly sampled males and females in the study with, uh, and then have a large enough um, sampling that you could then break those into subgroups. So let's say 60 GAD patients, um, 30 of whom were males, 30 who were females, and then another 60 healthy comparisons. Um, the challenge of course, is that um, those are really large sample sizes for the, the kind of work that um, I've described to you that which took uh, over five years to collect the data. Um, and that's not even including sort of writing the grants. Uh, and um, uh, in the literature, for whatever reason, there just tend not to be a lot of males in these, uh, in these studies. So um, what I've seen is that, that, that oftentimes the researchers will make a conclusion about GAD in general without addressing sex effects, um, even though their sample may not necessarily have that many males that would allow for uh, a, a fair uh, um, uh, interrogation of the question. Does that help? Mm -hmm. yeah, that makes perfect sense because we don't want to um, reveal ourselves, right? Um, does your study reveal anything about how PTSD, okay, well, um, I'm clinically diagnosed, I have PTSD, um, general anxiety disorder, depression, and pre-hypertension as well. And because of um, just my genetically, that's um, what I was predisposed to. Would that, would that be a good, um, or how can I put it? Um, would I be a client or, or, I mean, what could I potentially go down that path? Um, I know you can't say that 100%, but in general yeah well thank thank you for sharing um that information uh i i uh can tell you that um there were participants in the study who had ptsd um i think it was on the order of maybe a quarter of the sample 
Um, uh, and there were, uh, based on the percentages, there were many individuals who had all of the disorders that you listed. Um, not all of, uh, none of them had um, hypertension because that was an exclusion criteria for the study. Um, in terms of relating the results to PTSD, um, it's an area that I'd be interested in pursuing uh, because one of the um, diagnostic features of PTSD is heightened uh, autonomic arousal. So people who are, are not only vigilant um, with their thoughts, but they're, they're very vigilant about what's going on in their bodies. Um, and this can happen after a single trauma, it can happen after repeated traumas. Um, and whether that is because um, the um, traumas themselves are um, exerting their effects through primarily the central nervous system or through uh, sort of a combination of the peripheral and central nervous system. As I mentioned, a lot of stress research is focused on looking at cortisol and, um, and the effects of cortisol uh, gene expression, uh, cortisol-induced gene expression changes in the brain, right? And there are a variety of, of differences that have been found, oftentimes more commonly in females, um, it turns out. But um, this is an area that I think is, is really um, un, unexplored territory from the standpoint of the um, interoceptive sensations that, um, that we're inducing. So I can't say for sure, uh, but I can tell you that it, it's definitely an area that I'd be interested in doing further work in. Okay. Uh, Do you mind if I go ahead with um, my question? Just one more, just one more real quick. Um, you spoke about um, the prefrontal cortex, right? Um, and, and the intuition is what I was thinking. Um, and when you were sharing as well um, about, you know, that hair standing off the back of the neck and also the instinct is the... Uh, I know, I'm sorry, doctor. I just call it Abdullah Abdigada just from this AD. That's just a little funny thing. Because <laughs> that's all, yeah, I, I know it's not 100%, you know, what it's called, okay? But I think you know what I'm talking about. Um, and so what's the, how do we um, differentiate the two as well? And also, um, and the, the breath, um, oh my gosh, my breath gets really tight and, and there's a lot of tension and all kind of stuff that happens to my body. And I've been trying to do things like um, meditation, groundwork, and as well as within uh, my primary care physician and my OMT as well. But how can I um, add a different layer? to, you know, so it's not permanent. Yeah, that's, that's the, that's the big question, right? Um, how do we, how do we uh, um, provide therapies that um, deliver uh, enduring um, change, enduring improvements in symptoms, right? Um, th this is the, the sort of fundamental nature of psychiatric disorders is that um, we, 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 we take symptoms and we collect them into what we see as patterns, oftentimes on the physician doing that, right? Um, somebody who researches and treats patients with a particular condition and says, oh, I see this pattern of symptoms. Let's call it post-traumatic um, stress disorder. Um, so uh, symptoms themselves are things that a person feels, right? They're, they're sensations or thoughts 
um, that are bothersome uh, usually um, and, and to the point where the, that discomfort um, causes the individual or others around them to, um, to go to bring them to a, um, a provider for, for care. So, um, you know, we have a long ways to go before we have uh, permanent um, uh, solutions in terms of um, treatment for PTSD. Um, medications can help some. For some people, they are a, a long-term solution. For some people, uh, psychotherapy can be a long-term solution. For some people, they need multiple um, modalities combined. Um, I'm, I'm not able to point at this point to uh, a single um, option or combination option that, that has that sort of um, defined territory. Um, uh, but I, I think what I'd like to say is that the, uh, the approach that uh, I'm taking with this research that is very physiologically grounded is one that um, is aimed at trying to understand the physiological and neurological basis of the symptoms that people such as yourself are experiencing. So how is it that the body and the brain together um, are generating the, this discomfort that is, um, that maybe if we can, uh, if we can uh, access those underlying mechanisms and tweak them, um, we could attenuate the symptoms. And ultimately, if the discomfort goes away, if there's no um, impairment of somebody's function, um, that would be what uh, one of the in ingredients of the definition of a long-term, um, uh, you know, cure is not a good word, but a long-term uh, outcome that's beneficial, right? Um, I'm not able to sort of point to specific things at this point, but, um, but that's sort of, uh, I think the advantage of the, this current approach is that um, we're at least looking uh, under the hood, right? We're looking at the physiology, we're looking at the brain. Um, there are, of, of course, uh, other... Um, social, uh, economic, and cultural factors um, that, uh, that maintain, reinforce, um, and can sometimes even be a, a causative for disorders. And so I don't want to also tell you that I think the answer is all in biology, um, but, um, but these, are, uh, these are some of the most complex um, conditions um, that are encountered within medicine. And so um, a simple solution is, is, uh, is probably not going to be there. Olu, you had a question? Yeah, sorry. I, I'm going to have to take off in a couple of minutes for another meeting, but this is really great work, and I and I, I know it's not easy to do, so I wanted to uh, commend you and applaud um, uh, this excellent paper. Um, I just had a couple questions, one specific to the paper and one more general. The one specific to the paper is that you've got these um, regions that you identified as associated with these autonomic changes, like uh, uh, with sort of your most significant finding in um, the VMPFC. I was wondering if, and you were saying that you're not quite sure sort of that all of this, all of the uh, sort of activation and the interaction between these brain regions and the autonomic nervous system are, are sort of in this, in this loop. But I was wondering if you also looked at connectivity between um, your significant regions of interest and, and, and additionally effective connectivity to see if there was maybe a causal node, at least in the brain, related to, to some of your findings? So that's the, the specific question. And then I have a follow-up more general question. Yeah, that's a great question. So um, we're, we're trying to think about um, ways of doing effective connectivity um, that 
uh, are that would fit our data structure. Um, part of the challenge is that um, the, the turns out the imaging analysis is pretty simple because we only have two trials um, of each dose, and so we're doing in in to do some of these um, kinds of connectivity analyses. Really, what you want to have, um, as far as I understand, is uh, multiple multiple trials or um, uh, but the physiological response that we're inducing carries out over like a minute to a minute and a half. Um, so, so we end up using a block design analysis and, um, with only two trials per um, condition, uh, I'm, I'm a little uncertain that we actually are going to have enough, um, power for something, uh, as nuanced as an effective connectivity analysis. I do have a student who's working on that and, um, we actually have um, uh, some data in other um, uh, conditions, neurological conditions, in fact, where um, people who have known focal um, brain injury, um, where we're, we are going to try to look at a single subject level, whether we can see differences in effective connectivity, um, maybe more prominently when a particular region of the brain is focally damaged, right? Like. Um, not and no damage that we induce. Just a, a, um, these are patients who had a naturally acquired brain injury. Um, so uh, it's it's a great question, and we but we haven't um, we haven't really moved far ahead. The, the most that um, we've done in terms of connectivity is is a is a resting state um, functional connectivity. Um, that's a preprint I can send you if you're interested. Um, uh, and that one was was using sort of um, Bayesian analyses as well as the standard um, FC. Um, and the Bayesian analysis is actually pretty cool because um, it, it allows you a lot more flexibility um, uh, and ability to detect um, um, differences that um, that sometimes the standard kind of um, multiplicity corrections with standard connectivity, um, you know, uh, are, are a bit challenging. So. Yeah, yeah, please do. I, I would be interested. And and then my more general question just comes from my clinical experience of um, treating patients with GAD that also have um, chronic pain um, and often very uh, difficult to treat chronic pain issues, typically musculoskeletal pain. And I was wondering if you can comment on how your work might relate to that um, uh, sort of clinical experience. Yeah. Sure. Um, I'll also add, I'll, so I'll send you the preprint, but if you have um, specific thoughts about pr uh, particular effective connectivity techniques or papers, just let me know because I'll, I'll pass them along to my student. Um, so, so the thing about uh, pain, uh, so it's interesting to me that GAD patients frequently have, um, you know, they have muscle aches, they have headaches, um, and, um, and I, it doesn't seem to get a lot of attention in the literature and, 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 you know, sort of, um, I haven't uh, done studies specifically looking at the chronic pain, uh, overlap, um, in terms of therapeutic outcomes. Um, I, one thing that we are doing is, um, looking at interventions, um, that both modulate, uh, appear to modulate interoceptive experience, um, and, uh, acute pain, um, in a therapeutic, uh, or positive manner. So, um, and this will require a bit of a of a of a, of a um, change in mindset related to what I've already spoken about, um, and that is this um, novel uh, behavioral intervention called flotation therapy. Um, so uh, we, this is something that um, 
or float tanks or sensory deprivation tanks. Uh, if you Google that, you'll find a bunch of stuff. There's an annual float conference that has some nice videos um, uh, from the conference that you can learn about some of the research. But um, there it's an environment where you're kind of attenuating the outside world. Um, if you think about the isoproteranol, we're kind of boosting the internal world with the drug um, uh, and increasing anxiety to some extent. With uh, uh, flotation therapy, you're attenuating the outside world. People are in this, um, this um, shallow pool that has a lot of salt water in it, um, uh, bath salt, so it doesn't prune your skin. And, um, and they're kind of shut off from the outside world. So the lights are off, it's a sound attenuated chamber and they're floating on the water so they don't have to hold their breath or tense any muscles to just kind of relax and stay afloat. There's more salt in the water than the Dead Sea. So um, one of the interesting findings from that technique is that um, first of all, there are uh, short-term pain reductions reported by patients. Um, and then the other thing is that uh, people report feeling um, interoceptive sensations like their heartbeat and their breath stronger. Um, and we've seen that um, in patients with GAD who have comorbid um, pain disorders, um, uh, uh, as well as patients, GAD patients without comorbid pain disorders. But when you just look at their acute pain rating on a visual analog scale from pre to post float, um, they actually experience a significant attenuation. So, um, I'm not saying that that means you should then go and recommend floating for all your patients, but um, I do think that that's something that um, as a non-pharmacologic alternative, and certainly it's, it's less um, uh, likely, much less harmful than uh, opioid medications, um, uh, you know, to sort of explore. I think for other things like fibromyalgia, it could be interesting too. Hey. I'm sorry, Mike, go ahead. Oh, yeah, I was just going to say very cool, and thank you very much. I think uh, Dr. Raznick had a question. And I, I'm sorry, I was only able to give the paper a, a desultory scan, but this relates to the physiology. So you're giving the patients isoproteranol. Now, when they would normally have an, a sympathetic uh, episode, they'd be getting epinephrine. And although Clearly, I agree with you, that's primarily beta-adrenergic. There is going to be some alpha-adrenergic interaction. And I'm just wondering whether there might be a difference between epinephrine and isoproteranol challenge. Yeah, uh, likely there would be. I mean, certainly you would see blood pressure um, differences. So uh, we tend to um, see uh, uh, actually decreases or minimal changes in diastolic blood pressure with isoproteranol. Um, that's actually uh, one of the reasons it's commonly used um, for cardiac stress tests um, is, is because it's, it will increase contractility and increase systolic blood pressure. Um, but um, the, in, the, the reduction in diastolic is, will kind of, um, is, is sort of safer for the, for the cardiovascular risk. Um, so yeah, we haven't done that. Um, we certainly, um, it, it's, it's possible that um, it could be done. Um, I would need to have a, a strong enough rationale. I think um, the, the reason, I mean, it, it would be the sort of thing that if you had uh, clear hypotheses about alpha adrenergic receptors um, and certainly um, uh, uh, alpha antagonists and uh, are, are something that's used right in, in um, treatment of PTSD, um, there's central effects, of course, of, of the alpha uh, antagonism. So it's kind of, um, you know, 
there, there, there could be an interesting story there, but um, I, I'm, I'm not sure that that's going to be an area that I'll be moving into. No, I understand. I guess what I, I'm, what, all I'm trying to say is that stress would really be epinephrine and not uh, isoprotonol. And I'm just, just the, the idea is, could there be a different response pattern when we're dealing with the, the actual autonomic um, messenger of stress? Yeah, uh, I, I think I think it's it's possible. Um, uh, I, I think it just depends on which aspect of the of um, processing you're talking about. If you're talking about um, signaling um, within the autonomic nervous system or you're talking about symptoms, um, there might be differences in symptoms, but there might not be even with existing differences in, in autonomic reactivity. So um, hard to know. Thanks. Yeah, are there any other questions? I know we um, went a little bit over time. So um, yeah, if there's maybe another question, a last one can go ahead maybe, but if not, I don't want to stretch uh, too much Dr. Kalsa's patient. And um, yeah, Dr. Mariam, please go. Oh, um, not a question. I just wanted to say thank you to Dr. Halsa for his um, presentation. This was a really interesting paper and I look forward to hearing more of your research. So thank you for being here today. Yeah. The, thank you for having me. The same here. Um, yeah, if you, if you come back anytime with updates or maybe your student would like to come and present um the preprint you mentioned that would be uh, great um so yeah come please come back and um yeah um come back with updates christopher thank you for asking interesting questions uh dr olo had to leave but everyone in the audience thank you for coming and um yeah i hope you join the club we have more um interesting researchers coming here to present. Uh, we had actually um, a very interesting uh, researcher also related to mental health disorders this week. So yeah, um, I hope you have time to join us again. And yeah, thank you so much. Thank you, uh, Katerina, for the invitation. And thank you all for um, attending and for your very thoughtful and insightful questions. Um, I'll certainly be tuning into more of uh, this uh, society's activities. Doctor, before we leave, is there any studies about, I'm not clinically diagnosed with CTE, but I've had multiple concussions. Does that come into play at all? Uh, there, there are none that come to my mind right now. Okay, that was my final question. Yeah, thank you so much, everyone. I'll see you uh, back, uh, or I hear you back uh, tomorrow. Uh, it's a little bit of a different topic tomorrow and over the weekend, we have like some climate change, um, innovation updates and um, a company um, that is doing really interesting solar power, um, uh, linking with agriculture um that's on sunday tomorrow we'll talk about privacy issues with new tech google uh doesn't need nowadays the camera anymore to detect your behavior they have like 
um, other sensors now in their um, in their technology. Um, yeah, so we will discuss that, and then next week we will have um, some more very interesting um, guest speakers. So um, we had to move the Friday room um, about um, the clinical study with microdosing with LSD in healthy subjects that is moved to next Thursday um, in the evening at nine. And then we have Dr. Galitano on Wednesday. She will come at 10 p.m. talking about sleep deprivation, upregulate serotonin um, um, receptor um, effects. And Dr. Schwartz, from, uh, he will come and present on Wednesday at 10 a.m. X-ray computational ghost fluorescence mapping. Um, but it's a really cool new technology that he and his team developed. And then on Tuesday, we will have Dr. Ballone um, talking about autism driven um, by gene environment interactions. Um, so yeah, thank you all for coming and I'm looking forward to more rooms um, and uh, have a great day, evening, morning, wherever you are around the world and thank you.